farm economy is coming off a record year in 2022 and then another good year, although not quite as good in 2023. But multiple economic factors are changing and could have big impacts on the farm economy going forward. I don't think anyone's out there projecting us to go back to this super low interest rate environment that we uh, enjoyed between 2010 and 2022. That's David Widmar, an agricultural economist with Agricultural Economic Insights. I invited him on the show today to get his insights into the current state of the farm economy and how things could change going forward. Maybe strategies that we've been using for the last few years or last few decades might not be well-fitted or well-suited for the environment that we're getting ready to transition into. David and I will discuss these management strategies as well as economic cycles, farmland values, interest rates, inflation, and what potential risks lie ahead for the farm economy. The next margin squeeze, or this next era whenever we have to go through the fiscal tightening of the belt, is going to be very different than what we saw in 2016 if these interest rate environments stay the same. Because in 2016, we still had declining interest rates. We're talking farm finances, risk management, and the farm economy with David Widmar on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds, and uh, especially you ag econ nerds here for this episode. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I hear from the farmers and founders and innovators and investors and the people shaping the future of the ag industry. And I'm very pleased that this quarter, the Future of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Swap Maps, because when you know more, you grow more. Swap Maps variable rate technology helps you understand the why of field variability and how to better manage it. Understanding soils is the core of a successful fertility program, and Swap Maps allows you to map, measure, and better manage your soils using data that accurately delineates areas with similar fertilizer response characteristics. Turn your data into actionable value with Swap Maps. They are your trusted variable rate partner on millions of acres with a 98% retention rate. Highly recommend you go back and listen to last episode with Corey and Derek Found of swap maps um, but also check them out they do variable rate right visit swapmaps.com to book a consultation and learn more i've known Corey and been familiar with the swap maps team ever since he was a guest on uh, his first appearance on the show back in 211 and i'm really proud to host their swat agronomy podcast so thank you very much to swap maps for supporting ag innovation and the future of agriculture podcast and again if you're a farmer or consultant or agronomist you want to go check this out just visit swapmaps.com all right, now back to today's featured conversation with David Widmar. David is an agricultural economist specializing in agricultural trends and the farm economy. Huh, exactly what we're talking about here today. Through his research, he supports agribusinesses and farmers in their strategic and planning efforts. David is the managing partner of Agricultural Economic Insights, or AEI, which he co-founded with Dr. Brent Gloy in 2014. Prior to AEI, David was a researcher with the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University and served as the economist for the Kansas Department of Agriculture. Highly recommend you subscribe to all AEI's content and, and uh, check out their premium offerings. Uh, also, though, check out their podcast, AEI Presents. I especially recommend their season 
discussion on the 1980s farm crisis. If you like what we're talking about here today, you really have to go listen to uh, that podcast and specifically that season. In today's episode, David and I discuss things like farmland values, the impact of higher interest rates on the farm economy, how to think about risk, which is something I'm always wrestling with, uh, how to manage volatility in things like markets and inflation and much, much more. I'm going to drop you right into the thick of things here where David is discussing the current state of the farm economy and the chances that it will continue to moderate down from those 2022 highs. One thing that we do when we look at is inflation adjusted net farm income going back all the way to the late 1920s. And what you see in that data is we have big stretches of history where farm income is at or slightly below a long run average. And in 2023 dollars, that's about $100 billion. And then we also have periods where we have really phenomenal farm incomes, where they're more than a standard deviation, if you're measuring this statistically, above this this average. And these typically last just a few years. And then we see a reversion back to that mean. And so sometimes we have challenges like the late 1990s or the 1980s or you know, the 1920s and 1930s, where farm income is well below that average. But what's helpful in that historic context is to think about where are we in the cycle? Where are we in this farm story? So in general, we expect this reversion to the long run mean. We expect things to simply go back to this. I always think about farming in the 1990s, if you're a row crop producer, where Times aren't great, but they're not terrible. Uh, and so you make a little bit of progress. You don't make a lot of progress. What this long-run data series also helps us think about is how historically unusual years like 2011 and 2012, in some degrees 2013, and then 2021, 22, and 23 historically are. We just don't have years like we've seen in the last three years very frequently. In fact, we went from the 1980s to the 1990s. There was more than 20 years there where we didn't have one of these phenomenal high profitability years, probably almost 30 years if you really looked at that data. And so those are pretty rare, but we've had a lot of them in recent memory. And it also helps you think about, well, how bad are the bad times? You know, we had a big adjustment here in 2016 in the farm sector, uh, but it wasn't nearly as bad as what we saw in the late 90s or early 2000s and nowhere near what we saw in the 1980s. So you always got to think about the risk and the range of possible outcomes. And I think this net farm income story is really helpful for us to think about where are we? Are we at the high end of the distribution or that low end of those outcomes? And so to answer your question in a sentence or two, we've had really high net farm incomes we expect a moderation to the long run average. And it's in a question as it happens in 2024 or 25 and 26 or 27. Producers have a way of fixing those oversupply situations and uh, have to produce there at uh, economic break evens. Yeah. And, and this is obviously a complex topic, so you can't narrow it down to one specific variable. But I wonder what do the the big changes we've seen in, in interest rate policy in recent years, what impact, if any, does that have on things? Well, Warren Buffett has a great quote, and he might be the most overquoted person when it comes to finances. But uh, his quote is that interest rates impact everything in the economic universe. And so I've been challenging producers think about all the ways, you know, what ways won't it impact your business? So the first one is interest expense. So how much does it cost to borrow money? One of the interesting things that we've observed in the data is we've constructed these indices to say, how much in annual payments is $1,000 of farm machinery? 
And the first thing that caught our mind is that indice hasn't gone up. So if you're going out and borrowing $1,000 every year, how much are your annual payments? That hasn't changed much in the last few years. But when you dive deeper in the data, what you find out is higher interest rates have also happened with longer repayment periods. And so when you look at what is the lifetime expense of borrowing $1,000 for a new piece of farm machinery today, that's at uh, almost a historic high because we have longer payment periods and moderately high, historically speaking, interest rates. So that's one way that it's impacting the farm economy. Also impacts asset values. Even if you're not borrowing money on a farm in a higher interest rate environment, you're going to want to have a higher return given the income that we see. And so that's going to require a lower value for those assets. It takes time to see those things work through. But I think also as simple as how much feed do you want to have on hand? How much grain do you want to store through the winter? All these things start to have an impact because of this uh, these rate of returns. You know, one of the related concepts here that ties in the farmland, but it stands alone on its own is what kind of ROI do you need to accept to pursue a new investment? And so we might be accustomed to doing a whole lot of low ROI activities on our farms or in our business or in our economy. When interest rates were at or near 0%, it was easy to leave our money in our checking account or it was attractive to pursue something at a 3% ROI. But now, maybe it's an investment that we can make in our pivot irrigators or maybe it's an investment we can make on our equipment or in our crop protection program that had a 3% ROI. Well, now we're in a different environment where we could leave our money parked risk-free for or nearly risk-free for 4 or 5% in a banking account. And so this 3% opportunity now doesn't make sense given this new environment where the risk return trade-off has all moved higher. So now we can have higher rates of return and lower risk throughout the economy. As you know, I've been thinking a whole lot about risk lately and how I personally misperceive risks in my life so often and how we collectively all are really bad at sort of assessing risk. Um, I, I think it came to light maybe a year ago, I was listening to another podcast that said, you know, the podcaster kind of said, well, the future seems really uncertain right now. And the guests kind of said, well, when is the future certain? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, because you know, I've been guilty of saying the same thing. Like there's always risks that we don't understand. And sometimes it can feel like times are more risky than others. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. But anyway, I know I, I saw on Twitter you just recently uh, talked about doing a three risk exercise. And you came up with three risks, which were the uh, for the farm economy, I believe, which are the macroeconomic whiplash, slow working capital burn and, and paradigm paradigm shifts in commodity markets. And I, I wondered if maybe we could just start there with that exercise and how you came up with, with those three. Yeah, we spend a lot of time like you thinking about risk and helping others think about risk. And when you're an agriconomist, sometimes we're known as being, you know, pessimists by nature. So like, you know, we could talk for hours about all the ways that things could go bad at the farm level and the in US economy or the global economy. And we came across an idea several years ago that Jeff Immelt, who was the former CEO of GE, shared. And his thesis here was that every publicly traded company has to include this risk statement in their annual filings. And it kind of turned this bureaucratic process where they don't want to say a lot because they don't want to scare away potential shareholders, but they also want to cover all their bases. And it kind of became this jargon-filled to-do list. And his point was that if leaders of organizations would sit down and think about the three biggest risks facing their company that everyone would benefit. The leaders would benefit, the employees, the stockholders. And so we've taken that and built up this 
three risk exercise. And there's four steps. The first one's brainstorming. So spend some time actually thinking about all the bad things that could possibly happen. Helpful to put a time limit on that. So 15 or 20 minutes. It might take a few minutes to get the first one going, but you'll get a whole bunch of them after that. And then stop that brainstorming exercise, which is where most of us spend our time kind of overwhelming ourselves, just thinking about all the what-if scenarios. But then prioritize and rank the three. And this can be really, really hard. So step two is prioritize and rank. You're going to find some similarities between these things that you've listed. You're going to find things that might be important, but low probability. Uh, You might find things that are really important to the farm economy broadly, but you have something that's really more specific to your operation, like a transition that's coming up or an HR issue that needs to be addressed. And then the third step is to summarize it. Discipline yourself or challenge yourself to spend 15, 20 minutes writing a summary for each of those. And then the fourth step is to share it. Share it internally with your teammates, share it with your trusted advisors. And the idea kind of stems from this chance favors the prepared mind. If you're able to have three risks that you're willing to talk about or to share, you're going to be able to have really great conversations with those around you. It's not just rambling about what ifs and never ending lists of possible ways that your business could face difficulties in the upcoming year. But if you narrow that down to three and you've summarize what it means to your operation, what is specifically you're measuring or looking at, and what are some strategies that you might pursue. When you get to that sharing stage, it opens up a whole lot of opportunities. And and maybe talk about the three you came up with. Now, was this for kind of the farm economy, these, these three? Yeah. So we took a look at the farm economy level issues. And the first thing I want to say is that we write this to encourage agribusiness leaders and farmers, farm managers to do this for their operation. The blank page is often the the biggest, most daunting thing to overcome. So hopefully they take our risks and say, no, these guys are completely wrong or uh, this team's wrong. Let's focus on these other issues. So systemic, you know, economy-wide risk versus individual risk could be a big difference here. So like I said earlier, maybe you're doing a family generational transfer, or maybe you have a key employee who's getting ready to retire. That could be a risk that's very specific to you, but doesn't fit into the broader economy. So the first one we mentioned was macroeconomic whiplash. We have a situation here where farmland markets, depending on where you're looking and measuring cap rates or that relationship between farmland values and the cash rents, those are historically correlated with 10-year treasuries. Well, those have remained really low, somewhere around 2.5%, maybe lower. And we've seen 10-year treasuries trend higher over the last year. So if you're a farmer and you're out bidding on a farmland, are you going to try to bid a 2.5% cap rate? Or are you going to try to bid a 4% cap rate where the market is more currently as we're recording this in January? Or are you going to bid a 5% where we were three months ago? And the difference between a 2.5% and a 5% cap rate is really big. So how do you pick a rate of return for these projects that you want to pursue given all the uncertainty that's going on in the farm economy? So that's just one of the issues. We can talk about all of them if you want to talk about it. But if this is the idea of the exercises. This is not talking about interest rate volatility. Let's get very specific. And we we drove this to how do you pick a return on an asset that you want to purchase like farmland? What's an appropriate normal rate of return to think about in this current environment? That's interesting. And you know, this gets to something I was going to get to later, but maybe we just get to it right now, which is farmland values. And, and using your example of cap rates, uh, a lot of the rhetoric I hear out there is it, it's less about like, what cap rate can I get this land at? It's like, can I afford to buy this land at whatever price it's going to go. What are you discovering out there about how land purchasers are looking at farmland cap rates? So yeah, let's back up and say, what is a cap rate? I mentioned it earlier, but let's get kind of detailed and specific. The idea here is to think about 
what is the relationship between the asset's value and the annual earnings that I can I can expect? So there's this great story. Professor Purdue used to ask his students, what would you pay for a golden goose? Like Willy Wonka's golden goose. What would you pay for this golden goose? And this is an exercise that you can take to the boardroom or to your, your kids in kindergarten. And you ask them, what are you going to pay for this golden goose? And if people are honest with you, they'll tell you for a millisecond, they thought it was infinite. I'll pay an infinite amount of money for a golden goose. And then you pause for a second and you start asking yourself some fundamental questions. Well, what is the feed cost? How long is this goose going to live? Do I need to buy goose insurance? Uh, How much gold is it going to lay? What's the value of gold? So you start thinking about all these economic conditions that you can put into a model. And so the first piece here is what is the revenue that I can expect from that goose? Okay. And the second piece is what's that relationship between that that revenue that I can expect on an annual basis and the goose's valuation. And so if we have to bid on the goose, we can say, okay, this goose is going to give me $100 of income a year. Not a very profitable golden goose, but we might find that to be the case if we're trying to buy and secure and keep golden goose alive. We'll find a way to bid the, the returns pretty low over time. And the second piece is what sort of rate of return do you want? So if you take 100 and you divide it by this, this capitalization rate, so Cap raise, you know, what else could you do? And here we are in this economy in 2024. And what sort of rate do you want from that $100 of annual income? So if you want a really low rate, if you're willing to accept a low rate, you can bid a really high valuation. If you want a modest rate or a high rate, you have to bid that goose value really, really low. And this is oftentimes the way farmland is. Farmland is we can get a cash rental return or we can farm it and get the profits of the corn and soybean production. Or if it's pasture, we can earn our profits through the livestock that we eventually wean and sell. But the idea here is there's an income coming off of it and there's a valuation. And if we're making a bid on that land to purchase it, we have to think about that cap rate or that relationship. And in the last few years, we've seen that turn higher. And so that means all else equal, if we're getting $100 today and $100 two years ago, if a higher interest rate environment, if we want to have a higher return, we need to bid less for that asset to be able to still make an ROI that's sufficient in today's returns and today's economy, given that $100 has been unchanged. Now, that's the theory. But as we all know, returns to crop production, interest rates, they're all moving all over the place. But it's this volatility in cap rates in the 10-year treasuries that I think is really, really difficult for folks to focus in on. So, yeah. So with, then with with the farmland values going up and uh, maybe farm returns either staying steady or, or even possibly moderating a little bit, the cap rate goes down. And if we're comparing that cap rate to these, these treasuries, uh, it looks less favorable to buy farmland at those values than it would be just to put that money in a treasury. Am I, am I following so far? Yes. The idea of a cap rate is every asset would have its own unique relationship between the earnings that it could generate and the assets valuation. And this is the thing that we kind of do on the back of the envelope. A data set that we follow really closely is the Purdue uh, survey. They've been doing this since the late 70s. You know, all these farmland surveys come out. I always look at what's the rental rate that's posted for this survey and what's the farmland value. You can look at those two relationships. I don't get caught up so much into what the latest valuation is. I look at the difference between or that relationship between the income or the cash rent and that that valuations. I think that's really where the, a lot of the value is in these university or, or national surveys of farmland values go. So then that cap rate is what it is that this is returning or what we're buying. Now, that relationship to 10-year treasuries, we've just observed there's a correlation there over time. And the idea that 
for an individual say, okay, I can buy this farm at a 2.5% cap rate. This is what my bid looks like. Now, I can also put this in a 10-year treasury or I can put it in a bank and get 4 or 5% return. You can still say, I prefer this farmland investment at a 2.5% cap rate versus this 4% cap rate in this alternative investment. And so what makes this situation so interesting is that the alternatives all of a sudden have gotten more attractive and farmland has remained at this low cap rate. And so some of this is, you know, you're always going to bid a low cap rate for grandpa's farm or that highly coveted neighbor's farm across the corner. I always remind producers, never underestimate how low of a cap rate or how low of a return your neighbors might be willing to bid to farm this ground. A lot of times we think that when we get outbid on a farm, it's because the other producer was a better producer, better finance, better yields, better something. But at the end of the day, they might just be willing to do it for a lower rate of return. And this is where managers are struggling here today is if we want to keep buying farmland in a competitive way in today's market, we're going to have to accept a lower rate of return. The question we've been getting more in the last 12 months than we've ever gotten collectively in our careers is producers asking, why would I buy this farm at this cap rate when I could do this other thing? And we have a great conversation is that you can always accept a lower rate of return. There's nothing saying you can't accept this lower rate of return. You just need to think about the consequences and the alternatives. And so the consequences are, well, you've locked this in for a long period of time. The alternatives are you could have put it in a CD or in a savings account. And we've seen a big change in this interest rate environment over the last 24 months. The other thing I'm just going to note here is we've had a declining interest rate environment for uh, four decades. We've seen interest rates peak in the early 1980s, and they've generally declined for all this time. And so one of the challenges here is if you want to buy farmland and make a lot of money, you need to buy it when commodity prices are low and interest rates are high. Cap rates are really high because that's when values are low. And then you wait for the pendulum to swing to have really high commodity prices, really high profitability, and really low cap rates. And one of the challenges we've had is if you think back to 2022, when we saw farmland increasing 30-some percent in parts of the Corn Belt, we had really high corn prices, really low interest rates. And that's the recipe for really high valuations. So we'll see where it goes from here. And when you're looking at the farm economy, I would assume you, you've got to factor in like borrowing costs, right? That that factors in. And, and even with higher interest rates and borrowing costs in, in 2023, it was still relatively, you know, good year historically. Is that right? Right. That's, I think, one thing to keep in mind as we've talked about this is we've seen an uptick in the interest expense but that's occurred with historically high net farm income. And 23 is less than the record of in 2022. But as we start to move into more normal returns in our crop budgets or in our livestock budgets, we now have potentially this higher interest expense. So how are we going to how are we going to balance those budgets? I've been warning folks for a while, we've been working on some content around this. The next margin squeeze or this next era, whenever we have to go through the fiscal tightening of the belt, is going to be very different than what we saw in 2016 if these interest rate environments stays the same. Because in 2016, we still had declining interest rates. And now we see this rising interest rate. So if we see tight margins that last a few years, it could be much more difficult for producers to financially navigate that, given there might be less wiggle room on the balance sheets when it comes to farmland asset values or other asset values, but then also the budget might also be dealing with higher interest expense. Hmm. And I mean, historically, have we seen that type of situation before? I know you said it had been since the 80s since we've even seen rising interest rates. So you'd have to go back a long time. 
Yeah, there's not very many times in, in not many years in farm managers' careers where we've had to deal with it, a, a rising interest rate environment. And not only rising interest rate environment, but this three-risk exercise we talked about. It's a volatile market as well. And so it's just time for producers just to realize that maybe strategies that we've been using for the last few years or last few decades might not be well-fitted or well-suited for the environment that we're getting ready to transition into. And I don't know what the future has in store. We can guess and think about that or talk about that a little bit down the road in this conversation. But the idea here is producers just seem to recognize this rising interest rate environment impacts their business in a lot of different ways, not just borrowing money. So if someone might be listening to this say, hey, I don't borrow any money. I'm completely immune for this. No, that's the wrong conclusion. It impacts almost every aspect of your business and it impacts every farm out there. The idea we have to recognize is it's going to impact our business and we need to think about the ways that we can you know, manage through that and adjust and prepare for that. Yeah. And, and so speculating here a little bit, if, if it were to play out in this way that we, we hope it doesn't, but, but margins get squeezed at the same time that rates do not you know, continue to go up. Maybe the Fed's having continued problem fighting inflation and, and aren't going to drop rates the way that a lot of people think they are. What types of things can farmers do to to shift their strategy to that new environment? Well, it's going to vary for every operation. And I think that's really important to to keep in mind. I think the most important thing they can do is just to have this conversation. And so does it make more sense to use short-term debt in this current environment? Does it make more sense to use longer-term debt? And and it could it can vary. Right now we have an inverted yield curve, but that yield curve can uninvert and we could still have a high interest rate environment. There isn't sort of a one size fits all approach. Some of the things that producers can be thinking about is, you know, the working capital, that's the difference between the assets they can convert to cash in the next year and the liabilities they have to pay in the next year. You know, working capital is a really important risk management tool. And how are we using that working capital? You know, the most common easy way to think about this is cash in savings account or cash in a checking account. Are we making sure that that isn't getting 0%? Are we somehow getting a return on that? Because that could be uh, really valuable to pursue. If we're storing grain or holding a lot of feed, what's the cost of that? What's the interest to cost as we start to think about that? And so there's just a lot of different ways that impacts our business. And I think the first step is just sort of recognizing that and just being very candid about how have low interest rates benefited your business? And then thinking about how do you need to think about this in maybe a different interest rate environment? I don't think anyone's out there projecting us to go back to this super low interest rate environment that we uh, enjoyed between 2010 and 2022. You know, human beings can be funny about how we anchor things. And I think a lot of us have anchored this low interest rate inflation in period to just the last two years. But if you step back a little bit, you realize that really since about 2010 has been this very low, very stable interest rate environment. And so we've been in this bathwater for quite a while and it feels pretty comfortable. How are we going to start to transition out of that? And I'm not talking about 1980s level situations, which is you know, 18% farm level interest rates or, or higher. I'm talking about 5, 6, 7%. We've been there in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, but our, we might have forgotten how we were managing our businesses and using debt and managing our balance sheet assets. So just revisit that and think about that. So direct me if this is not the right way to ask this question, but um, how leveraged is the American farmer relative to history? Do we Do we have some sort of sense of like, the amount of leverage that the, the average farmer or farmland owner is taking on? Well, that's a great question. That's a question that uh, is worth discussing. And so 
it's one of those things, Tim, where you can go find data to support whatever conclusion that you want to you want to conclude it. So one of them is a debt to asset ratio, and that is simply you know a balance sheet measure. And I think one of the conclusions we had from the 1980s farm crisis is, oh, producers had too much debt. You can see it in the debt to asset ratio, and that's why we had a farm financial crisis. And we've done a lot of work on that. We've dug into the data quite a bit. And what's interesting is that throughout the 70s and early 80s, actually assets increased faster than debt. And then what happened during the crisis is asset values fell. And so it wasn't necessarily that they woke up one day and took on more debt than their assets. They woke up one day and their assets weren't worth as much as their debts. And that's where we got this spike in the debt to asset ratio. So that's a common canary in the coal mine that we like to see. And unfortunately, I see a lot of people uh, put this chart up and say, look, the USDA says the debt to asset ratio is still nowhere near 1980s levels. We're good to go. And again, that's more of a lagging indicator than a leading indicator. There's another data point out there that says something like 60% of producers have no debt at all. And that is a reflection of a broad definition of what it means to be an agricultural producer. And I think the other thing to keep in mind there is, we don't repay debts or service debts at the sector level. And so we have to always keep in mind that for both of these data points I mentioned. And so uh, this gets me to the third point is we have a lot of debt concentration in the largest operations that we see out there. And so if you really want to understand the risk that's out there for farm debt, you really need to understand the idea here that small number of the 2 million farmers hold a large share of the debt out there. And so we have to think about it in that context. And so if a thousand of the smallest producers or the smallest scale producers had financial hiccups versus a thousand of the largest producers who have a lot of debt and a large percentage of the debt, that would have different impacts on the farm financial system. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I, we, we've talked about a lot of things with farmland values and interest rates and inflation, kind of hot topics when it comes to the farm economy. Um, what are we leaving out that you're thinking about most, either in the, the near term or in the long term, that we should make sure we squeeze in here uh, before I have to let you go? I think one of the things to keep in mind is that we watch what the Fed says on a – they have a, a quarterly projection summary. And so what are they thinking about for the next upcoming quarter? And that's really helpful. It's helpful not – necessarily because they're good forecasters. It's good to understand what assumptions went into the decisions they made in December, for example. And so they still anticipate inflation to continue to cool. Uh, they don't see a recession. And they never they never forecast recessions. Recessions have a way of finding us. But the idea here is if we see any of these deviations, any deviations from their their last set of expectations, that gives us some sort of footing for understanding how the Fed might tweak and adjust and pivot. The other thing I'll mention, this is super in the weeds a little bit, but the Fed's also been stimulating and slowing the economy down over the last decade through the size of its balance sheets. And so we've been really focused on interest rates and the short-term rates, and we've been telling producers to watch long-term rates. I think the other thing to watch from the Fed is, do they keep on this set it and forget it trajectory that they've uh, talked about for their balance sheets? And we've seen that kind of working away in the background for the last year, 18 months. but the Fed saying, okay, let's pull short-term interest rates back, but they still could continue to unwind that balance sheet, which has a little bit of a breaking effect on the economy. So it's not just the Fed that's hitting the gas and hitting the brakes through short-term interest rates. They also have the 
the balance sheet tool that they could use. There's also spending that Congress authorizes throughout the federal government. So there's a lot of things that could impact the economy one way or the other. And the idea is not to get too focused on one specific element, but to keep a broad view and keep a broad look of all the elements and issues that are out there. Well, uh, this is somewhat related, but also at the same time, kind of out in left field. You know, the rise of these carbon programs that are out there, my assessment of that is they've made little difference on the the farm economy whatsoever. If you look at sort of the the numbers of, you know, what a difference selling some of your carbon that's being supposedly sequestered generates for a farm. Uh, do you see that becoming a more substantial part of the farm economy in the future, sort of whether it's carbon or other ecosystem services that farms could offer? Yeah, I think long-term non-ag claims on ag resources. So we think about, that's a fancy way of saying things that we used to use for ag that we're now using for non-ag activities. That we think will be an important trend to keep an eye on and monitor long-term. You know, that could be something is selling the hunting rights to your your ground. It could be leasing the ground for a solar or a wind installation or selling it for those things. You know, the demand for ag resources from non-ag uh, uses could still be a really big deal. I think, you know, the carbon credits is a very specific example. And I think that's still a long ways away. You know, we did a some work around looking back at the rise of ethanol and thinking about what it tells us about for carbon markets. And These things take a long time. Ethanol has a long, long history, and it took a lot of government intervention to sort of jumpstart it and get it to where it is today, for better or for worse. And we haven't seen the interest for policy action kicking in yet. So it's going to take a while for these adoptions to kick through. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that if you're going to get a $10 or $20 or $50 an acre per year carbon payment, uh, that isn't like a free ATM that's going to benefit your farm for forever into the future. It's not going to save your farm finances for forever. You're going to figure out a way to bid that into the the valuation of the land that you rent or you buy. And so we can still get ourselves in trouble long-term with this new income stream that all of a sudden we adjust our cost of production to our standards of living or our just our business models adjust to that. And so it could be a bit of a short-term opportunity, but long-term kind of goes back to innovation, right? Eventually, innovation sort of becomes the norm. And so, that's the idea. It's like, oh, we have this new income stream. We have a way of, of absorbing that into our business model through lots of different ways. And it's not going to necessarily foolproof our business for the rest of our career. We have to be very cautious about how we pursue those and how we implement those into our business. And then sort of what's next? What do we look to long-term? Yeah. David, I really enjoyed this. Um, I, I appreciate, of course, the depth of your analysis, but also your willingness to kind of take all these questions on the fly like this. Uh, anything else that you'd either want to add or emphasize uh, before I let you go? And of course, we will direct people to AEI.ag to uh, sign up and subscribe for your services. You know, I'm optimistic about the future of agriculture. I think that I don't want anybody to listen to this and think, oh my gosh, this is really uh, pessimistic and, and and challenging. We just have to recognize we're in this this unique piece of history. And to your point, as you sort of mentioned this earlier, is the future is always uncertain and there's always bright spots and, and difficulties that we are trying to navigate. One of the things to keep in mind is that 2021 and 2022 and to some degree 2023 were really financially good. And I think it's important for producers to pause and reflect on what they were able to accomplish in those few years, how historically unusual those times were, reflect on what progress they made towards those long-term goals that they maybe had set out for themselves. And then think about and recalibrate their expectations for what 24 or 25 have in store. If we use 2022 as the benchmark for, is my farm successful or not for the rest of our careers, we're going to be disappointed. But we got to have goals and plans 
to continue to grow our businesses long-term. And I think that as long as producers sort of reflect on it, take some good conclusions away from it, and then recalibrate for the years, uh, either this year or the years ahead, they can still make long-term progress in their operations. And, and we never know when the next boom or the next bust is going to come to the farm economy, but we have to build business models that are resilient and responsive to either of those. Well, that is where we will conclude today's episode with uh, resilient and responsive business models. I love that. A lot of thought-provoking stuff there from David. Obviously, nobody here can predict the future, uh, but preparing for what's happening and looking at the forces that are happening right now under our very noses might help us better manage the risks that are ahead. Risk management is something I'm passionate about, always thinking about, want to learn more about. So I really appreciate David's insights and his wisdom on today's podcast i'd like to bring david back on at some point and if you'd like that i'd love to hear from you what'd you think of this episode what questions do you still have for david should i ask on the next time i interview you can find me on twitter at tim hamrich or on linkedin uh, or just email me tim at aggrad Com. But thank you again to David for being on the show. Also, thank you to Swap Maps for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. Go check them out at swapmaps.com. And last but certainly never least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Mm-hmm.